1937. This is the word of the Lord, the vision given, the unveiling given to the Apostle John. One of the seven angels, this is what he sees, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, as clear as crystal. It had great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three on the north and three on the south and three on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And skipping to verse 22, he says, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. We're going to ask three questions. Where are we going? And where does that put us today? And then how is it possible? First, where are we going? What we see, if this is the end game, if this is the direction of history, if what we're seeing on this second to last chapter of the Bible is the picture of where all of human history leads, the destiny of the cosmos, what is it a picture of? It's a picture of the city renewed. It's where we're going. We talked about this last week, a creation that is renewed, a picture of cosmic healing. Uh, It's what we looked at in the previous chapter where God is not going to annihilate his favorite planet. This earth is not temporary. It will undergo the fires of purification, but having gone through the fires of purification, it will rise as a phoenix from the ashes. Christ is not going to kill his world. In Romans 8, St. Paul said that the whole creation is waiting for its liberation from bondage to decay when it will be freed and brought into the freedom of the people of God. Uh, What this is going to look like specifically as we zero in in this chapter this week is this renewed creation will look like a city that is renewed because we see heaven and earth renewed and we see the city of God, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem descend onto the earth. And 
and it's been urbanized. The story of the Bible is a story of God placing humanity in a garden and saying, I want you to work this, and I want you to till it. And, at the, and he says, I, I'm giving you gifts. I'm making you in my image, and I'm calling upon you as my co-creators, made in my likeness, made in my image, to enter in and to take the things of this world and to transform this garden, to apply your skill and genius as human beings in a godlike way to create to take a cow and to take a plant and to create a mocha latte out of that, to take a forest and create furniture out of that, and and to build buildings out of mountains uh, and ores that you dig out of the earth. It's our calling as humanity from the very beginning was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it as co-creators. And yet what we see in the Bible is that calling is so damaged by our sin that everywhere we see the city, we see its glory, but we also see its shame as it highlights the brokenness as well as the glory of being human. And yet at the very end, what we're seeing is that that garden has been transformed into a city. All of the details are the same. The same tree, the same river running through the middle of it. It's a picture of Eden, but Eden has become a massive megalopolis, the ultimate city. A city so massive in its proportions and so perfect that it's presented as a cube, one of only two perfect shapes. Cities have always had a redemptive role to play from the very earliest days of human prehistory. Cities are what provided you protection, protection from wild animals, protection from bandits, protection from the uncertainties of being isolated and out of touch with the rest of humanity. Even in the Mosaic law of the Hebrew scriptures of our Old Testament, you see cities of refuge, a place where those who are absolutely thoroughly guilty can go to seek refuge and protection from those who would seek vengeance against them. And God, in revealing the destiny of the universe, is showing that it is indescribably urban. And the Lamb of God is at the center of it all. This revitalization of the city is the direction of human history. Socially, culturally, spiritually, physically, what we have is a vision of shalom, of everything webbed together in justice and mercy and truth because humanity and the created world are both reconnected with God and everything is universally thriving. And that thriving is a thriving city. Don't picture clouds and harps when you look at the age to come. Uh, There is certainly a heaven that the Bible mentions as a place where we go when we die, and from there, with the Lord and with the other Christians throughout history, we wait. And what we're waiting for is what you've just read in this passage. What we're waiting for is the new heaven, uh, the new earth, physical, corporeal existence reconciled to God, where everything God intended in the beginning has been redeemed and made whole. The garden turned into a glorious city where the kings of the earth bring their splendor into it. Think about the resurrected Christ. The the resurrected Christ ate. He ate fish. He had a physical body. He didn't eat the fish and the fish fall through him because he was a ghost. He even says, look at me, touch me. Ghosts don't, you can't touch a ghost. 
I got holes in my hand. I'm real. I'm resurrected. I'm not just a spirit. And this is what's going to happen to you. And this is what's going to happen to the whole creation as it's described in the Bible. Jesus describes the coming age as a great banquet in which people come from the east and the west to sit down, to eat together. It's a picture of community, of diversity, of relational fulfillment, of physical pleasure. And every culture it says, is bringing their glories into the city of God. Did you pick up on that? It's verse 24, verse 25. The kings of the earth bring their splendor into it. And then in verse 25, or verse 26, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. What's the glory and honor of the nations? The glory or the honor of a people group. It's their greatest cultural riches the things that they've done right, the things that they have produced that people look at them and say, wow, that's awesome. And what this is saying is that everything that has been done in human history, all of the glory and all of the splendor is actually redeemed and washed of its sin and cleansed of that which defiled it and it's brought into the city of God. You can picture the French with the Arc de Triomphe and the palace and gardens of Versailles bringing that in to populate, to, to, to fill out the city of God. You can imagine the St. Louisans with their toasted ravioli and they also have an arch and their arch is bigger and less clunky and, it, and they're bringing it into the city of God. You've got the Italians with the Mona Lisa because they get that back because Napoleon stole it and that's injustice and everything evil is undone. But the Italians are bringing in the Mona Lisa and the Brazilians with their samba dancers and Africans with their high view of the family, their visual art, their oral folklore. The British with Shakespeare and Chaucer, Thai chefs mixing their amazing curries, Indians bringing in the Taj Mahal, only now it's not a monument to a death but a monument to life itself that comes from the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God. The Americans are there with their casseroles and with their soul food, and they're driving zero-emission 57 Chevys, and all the peoples of the earth. This is what it says. They're bringing their glory. They're bringing their splendor. That's what this means. All the peoples of the earth offering their greatest accomplishments to God for his glory and no longer for our own glory. A God of beauty and grace and power, cleansing it all, removing the defiling stain of human evil, washing it, transforming it, renewing it, healing it, transfiguring it into something that reflects the beauty and the magnificence of the one in whose image humanity has been made and into whose likeness the church, the new humanity, is being remade in the likeness of Christ. What John is shown here is that though the ship may be sinking, the ship will rise again because the Lord Jesus Christ will float it and transform it and the brass will be polished with a finish such as the world has never seen before. It means urban revitalization is at the very center of God's purpose for human history. It's where we're going. It's where we're moving. It's what is ultimately going to stand where it's always been headed according to this second to last chapter of the Bible. And it completes the biblical narrative and puts the entire story in context, a garden transformed into a city, a story of humanity redeemed by Christ, urbanization and its redemption as the eternal purpose of God for the cosmos. 
That's where he's taking us. I can think of nothing better to give my life toward than the renewal of the city through Jesus because that is the only thing that ultimately stands at the end of the age. The city itself renewed. Where are we going? The city renewed. So where does that put us today? Today that puts us living in light of the world to come. Because what you do in this life has a direction. It's going somewhere. You remember Alice in Wonderland from the beginning of the Revelation series? We've got that picture of the Cheshire Cat, I think. Uh, You remember Alice? She's freaking out. She's in Wonderland, only it's not really a Wonderland. It's a horrible place. And she ends up at this fork in the road, and she's freaking out, and she doesn't know which way to go, and the Cheshire Cat appears, first his stripes and his teeth, and then the rest of them. And she says, oh, Cheshire Cat, I don't know which path to take. And he asks her, well, where are you going? She says, I don't know. And he responds, what does he say? Well, then it doesn't really matter. What we're shown here is the destination. The destination that shows us exactly where we're going. Exactly what Jesus is doing on this earth. Why he came, why he died, why he rose, and what he's coming again to do. What determines what we do now? If your life has a destination, if humanity has an end game, if St. Louis is actually going to be somewhere eternally, then what we do as a church, what you do as your family, what you do in your marriage, what you do in your worldly calling has ultimate and eternal significance. You see, that's because Christians live in two ages. We don't live in two kingdoms. There's a theology out there, sort of a new take a misinterpretation of of Luther's two kingdoms theology that says that the church is one kingdom and the world is another kingdom and Christians should just focus on the church and not on the world, not taking care of it, not actually trying to improve it or make it more just. But the Bible doesn't say we live in two kingdoms. The Bible describes us as living in two ages, the age that is now disappearing and the age that has been now inaugurated in Christ and will come in fulfillment at what we call the consummation, Christ's return when he makes everything right. Jonathan Lehman says it this way. He says, a doctrine of two ages or inaugurated eschatology, it's a big word, is a popular way among New Testament theologians for characterizing how creation history and redemptive history bifurcated when Christ's kingdom was inaugurated but not yet consummated through the giving of the new covenant. Then he explains what that means in English. He says, the history, the history of new creation began even while the history of the old creation continued. Oliver O'Donovan helpfully, hopefully, helpfully transplants this New Testament conversation in the domain of political theology. He says, the passing age of principalities and powers has overlapped with the coming age of God's kingdoms. What that means is that as a Christian, you are living in a unique way in two ages simultaneously, this present age and the age to come, which has already started with the coming of Jesus, one that's passing away, one that's now begun to dawn. Paul, St. Paul in Romans says that the night is nearly over and the light has begun to dawn. So what does it look like to live now as Christians, not just in this present age, living life the way this age does it, 
doing marriage the way this age does it, raising children the way this age does it, handling money and sex and power the way this age does it. That's, that's, that's outside the church. That's what we expect. But for the Christians to live in light of the age that has now dawned and that is coming in its fulfillment means that you are in a unique position. We've got another photo. Um, uh, you look at a, a cocoon. That's not fruit. That's a cocoon. You look at a cocoon, and you can look at it for weeks on end, and it doesn't really change. And you think there's no life there. Nothing's happening. It's what this world seems like. No matter how much you try to improve it, no matter how much you actually engage with people, no matter how much you talk about Jesus, nothing ultimately really seems to change. And the Bible says that something's happening. You don't see it, but something's coming. We've got another photo. Because at some point, that thing is going to bust open, and what's going to come out is going to be stunning in its beauty and its life. You're living in what looks like a cocoon. But understand, spiritually, supernaturally, invisibly, quietly, slowly, the kingdom of God and the coming age is actually invading this world and is doing work. And the day is going to come when you're going to be able to see it. Because we're in process now, even today. What's it look like to be in progress? To live in light of the coming age? It means living in the ethics of the coming age with its justice, with its beauty, with its truth, A world is coming in which there is no poverty, in which disease is eradicated. A world in which prisoners are all set free. A world in which every life is valued. A world where there is justice and mercy and grace. Are you living now in light of those ethics? Are you serving those things? And are you engaging with your world in such a way to live in the light of the age that is beginning to dawn? that you as a church would be a safe haven for returning citizens, a safe haven for the poor, a safe haven for the refugees, that you would relate to them and step toward them with grace in such a way as you will be manifesting the coming age through your deeds done in faith in Christ. Think of community as urban renewal. Some of you are raising children Some of you are working on marriages. Some of you are engaging with with people, friends, neighbors, coworkers. Some of you are engaging with people of other races, other ethnic groups, other nationalities, other backgrounds, because you're trying to do biblical community. You're trying to love as you have been loved. You're trying to put this biblical vision into practice, trying to live in light of the age to come. What will it look like for you to take the values of the age to come and give those values to your spouse? and inculcate those values in your children, and to manifest those values in all the people that you engage with as you seek the renewal of this city because its renewal is what is coming. The generosity, the hope, the intimacy, the loyalty, the diversity, and above all, the love, to bring the love of the coming age now into what we do. Your work as urban renewal bringing the values of the kingdom to bear in your calling and worship as urban renewal to bring the values of the coming age before God in worship, in your private worship and in corporate worship. 
because the city and all the glories of the nations are going to be brought into the presence of God and offered to him for his glory. And are you doing that now? Think of the sounds of the central corridor of St. Louis, where we are right now. You are in the central corridor of St. Louis City and County, uh, and it is the central corridor that contains both of our region's major research universities, most of our major arts organizations, most of our media outlets. Uh, it it's, has both of our downtowns, downtown St. Louis and downtown Clayton. It has the crown jewel of Forest Park. It's, it's, it's the center of our region. L- listen to the sounds of the Central Corridor. You ever just listen to them? You've got Powell Symphony Hall, the sounds of the symphony. And you've got jazz at the bistro or jazz St. Louis. And you've got the University City Drum Circle. And you've got the pageant. And you've got the kid on Delmar with his guitar strumming away. And you've got all these diverse sounds in the central quarter of St. Louis. What would, it, what would it sound like to bring all of that music to God and offer it to him in corporate worship? To imagine going into a worship series in your service and you're hearing classical and you're hearing hip-hop and you're hearing all these various sounds in a drum circle too because we're bringing St. Louis into the city of God and manifesting in corporate worship as the people of God what is coming in the coming age when this age comes to fulfillment and all the nations of the earth will bring their music to offer worship to God and to the Lamb forever and ever. It's a foretaste of heaven. It's not just something for you to come and feel refreshed. It's a taste of what is to come as the people of God gathered together manifest the love, the loyalty, the self-sacrifice, the beauty, and the diversity of the coming kingdom. How is it possible? How is it possible? It's possible because what we see in this coming kingdom in the city of God on earth is that the Son of God is at the center of it and He loves His church. See, the city at this point has become the church because the nations who have been redeemed are the ones populating this city. It says this city is the church. It describes it as the bride, as the wife of the Lamb in verse 9. And, and so you want to be really careful how you talk about the church because I know I can criticize a man. I can tell him, that I think he's crazy. I can tell him I think he has an anger problem. I can tell him I find him difficult and opinionated. I can tell him I find him lazy. I can tell him all sorts of stuff, and he'll nod, and he might get mad at me, but he'll be okay. But if I say one word of criticism about his wife, I will never hear the end of it. Think of the love that Jesus has for his bride. Think of the love that Jesus has for his church. He knows her failings. He knows her weaknesses. He knows her foibles. He knows her disloyalty and her adulteries. And he loves her. He loves her completely because that is his bride. You are his bride. And he loves you. Look at the security of this marriage between the Lamb of God and his church. 
It describes it here. The city of God, the wife of the Lamb. She's received incredible power from God. She is set up on a high mountain, mountains being a symbol of power. This is something we already have, not our strength, but the power of the Holy Spirit, which has fallen upon you and gives you strength and power to testify to Jesus and to represent him with your deeds as well as with your words of love. She shines, it says, with a glory not her own, but with the glory of God in verse 11. The church has a relationship that has complete security. It describes high walls in verse 12. Gates that never need closing because there's never a time of fear. There's no night because there's never a time of insecurity. You have absolute security in your Savior because you are the bride of the Lamb. Describes a relationship built on a foundation that can never be shaken. Twelve foundations, the gospel spoken through the apostles. It has their name upon it. A church that God has shed his light upon in verse 23. Outside, it says, are the dogs. Dogs are unclean animals, not literally dogs. Dogs, I think, probably go to heaven. Uh, I know cats do. Uh, They're in Isaiah, it says so. Uh, actually, wolves too, so they're dogs. But, uh, but outside are the unclean. Dog was an unclean animal in the Old Testament uh, uh, purification laws. I mean, those who haven't been washed, those who don't know Christ, those who reject his grace, they're, they're, they're outside, but not you, not the church, not the wife of the Lamb. She has absolute security, the power of God fallen upon her, shining with a light not her own, on a foundation of absolute security, the gospel of the apostles, and God is shedding his love upon his church, upon his new creation, which has become the city of God, and the glory and the honor of the nations are brought into it, the glory and honor of the Gentiles, even of those who don't yet know the grace of God, what they have produced And that it's their glory we see brought in, redeemed, washed, renewed, transformed, and reoriented such that the nations will walk by its light. This is where we're going. We're going toward love. The love of God for his church. The love of God for his creation. The love of Christ for the city. Because our names as Christians are written. Verse 27, in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus is the Lamb. There is no temple because he's there. And he's called the Lamb because all of this is possible because of the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ who shed his blood so that you might live. Ryan Chapel tells a story. He says, as a child, I loved the evenings that the kids in our family would sit by my dad's chair while he read us stories aloud. He said, one of my favorites was the poem, The Highwayman. The poem tells of an adventurer who robs the coaches of English aristocrats. The daring highwayman is in love with an innkeeper's daughter, and by night, when the coast is clear, he courts her. The authorities learn of this romance, and one twilight before the highwayman arrives, British soldiers invade the inn. They tie the innkeeper's daughter at the window so that the highwayman will see her and believe the way is safe. And then, lest she try to warn her love in any way, the soldiers gag the maid and tie a musket at her heart that will fire at the slightest movement. And the highwayman comes riding. Unaware of the muskets, 
that wait to cut him down. The highwayman gallops ever closer to his destruction. He sees his love at the window. She hears his horse's hooves on the lane. The soldiers cock their muskets nearer to the arms he loves, nearer to his destruction. The highwayman comes riding. And then, just as he is about to enter musket range, a premature shot rings out, warning him to turn back. And the highwayman reigns, and he turns as the frustrated soldiers shoot a futile volley. And all the muskets fire, but only one found its mark. The one true shot was from the musket that fired the warning. The musket aimed at the heart of the innkeeper's daughter. She warned him at the expense of her life, and the warning was an expression of her great love. Friends, that's the lamb. The lamb sacrificed so that another could live. That's what Jesus did for you. The cross, the self-sacrificial cry of God taking a musket to his heart in order that he might enter even now, that you might enter his embrace and begin to live in light of the coming age, the age of love, the age of renewal, the age in which the city is transformed and liberated and brought into the presence of God, transformed in justice and compassion and generosity and life and love. It's where we're going. The Lamb of God is among you. God is with you. As the love of God touches your soul, it's going to change you. It's going to turn you as a people inside out as agents of love for St. Louis and for the world. My favorite Jonathan Edwards sermon is not Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, though I think that is brilliant and uh, a very good sermon. Um, not really contextualized well for the 21st century, but a great sermon. But my favorite is actually, uh, um, Heaven is a World of Love. And in this sermon, uh, Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, The cause and fountain of love is heaven. In heaven, sorry, the, the cause and fountain of love in heaven is that the God of love himself dwells in heaven. Heaven is the palace or presence chamber of the high and holy one whose name is love. And he is both the cause and source of all holy love. Heaven is a part of creation that God has built toward this end to be a place of his glorious presence. It is his abode forever, and here will he dwell and gloriously manifest himself through all eternity. And Edwards continues, And this renders heaven a world of love. For God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of light. And therefore, the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love as the sun placed in the midst of the visible heavens in a clear day fills the world with light. The apostle tells us that God is love, and therefore, seeing he is an infinite being, it follows that he is an infinite fountain of love. Seeing as he is an all-sufficient being, it follows that he is a full and overflowing and inexhaustible fountain of love. And in that he is an unchangeable and eternal being, he is an unchangeable and eternal fountain of love. There, even in heaven, dwells the God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that is or ever was proceeds. There dwells God the Father, 
God the Son and God the Spirit united as one in infinitely dear and incomprehensible and mutual and eternal love. There dwells God the Father, who is the Father of mercies, and so the Father of love, who so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son to die for it. There dwells Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of peace and of love, who so loved the world that he shed his blood and poured out his soul unto death for men. There dwells the great Mediator, through whom all the divine love is expressed toward men, and by whom the fruits that love have been purchased, and through whom they are communicated, and through whom love is imparted to the hearts of all God's people. There dwells Christ in both his natures, the human and the divine, sitting on that same throne with the Father. And there dwells the Holy Spirit, the spirit of divine love, in whom the very essence of God, as it were, flows out and is breathed forth in love, and by whose immediate influence all holy love is shed abroad in the hearts of all the saints on earth and in heaven. And there in heaven, this infinite fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one, is set out without any obstacle to hinder access to it as it flows forever. There this glorious God is manifested and shined shines forth in full glory in beams of love. And there this glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yea, in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransomed may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. The day is coming, friends. The love of God is coming. His love for the city, his love for his church, and his love for you in Christ. Let us pray. O Father of love, you who sent your Son into the world to die for us, we would offer you our blood-bought loyalty and love as you have shown your grace and your delight upon us. We consecrate the elements of this table to you that you would preach the gospel to us and weave us together as the new humanity, as your family in a kingdom of love. It's in the name of Christ, your Son, that we pray.